everyone. Welcome to When Women Preach. This podcast exists to empower AAPI and Latino woman faith leaders. I'm Joanna Choi, and we're here with our co-founder and executive director, Young Lee Hertag. And our guest for this episode is Reverend Angela Furlong, and she's currently a participant in our Pastoral Lab program. And in addition, she's a priest in the Episcopal Church. Her call to ordained ministry follows a lifetime of eclectic and fruitful calls in the secular world. She's held several professional positions as a teacher, a neurobehavioral specialist, a parenting specialist, a linguist, a naturalist. She's also a wartime veteran. And her familial experience is both multiracial and multicultural, and her values reflect that. Um, her father is African-American, mother is Luso-Asian, her sister is African-American, and her brother is Chinese-Indian, and she tirelessly professes God's unconditional love for all and above all else. She is passionate about the healing power of love. Can you share your testimonial of how you came to Pastoral Lab? I know that you drove from Berkeley to LA once a month to attend the in-person meetings, which is amazing. So just would love to hear how you, how uh, you found out about it. Yeah. So, um, I was in seminary and I had just, I was in my third year and I spent my entire first year of seminary during the pandemic lockdown. So everything was on the computer. I was talking to some representatives from Trinity Wall Street who purchased our seminary and we were talking about um, different opportunities and they asked me if I had heard of Isaac or of Pastoral Lab and I hadn't. So they told me all about it and introduced me to Young. And when I called Young and, and we set up a time to meet and she told me all about the program, I decided instead of doing it online, I wanted to be in person. I was tired of doing online things. And so even though that meant that I would have to drive down to LA once a month, I gladly did so. So inspiring. Yeah, I know Young was really excited about that. I just kept hearing about this person who was driving all the way from Berkeley to LA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you've added so much to the group. So we're just really glad that you're a part of it. I'm grateful to be a part of it. And now, since then, I've moved away. And so now I feel like I'm part of two groups, which is, I'm very grateful for that. I've been embraced by the Northeast-Southeast cohort, but I've also been um, welcomed to remain a part of the LA cohort peripherally. So I'm grateful for that. I feel like that speaks to who you are as a person, too, in that you have this really rich background, teacher, neurobehavioral specialist, linguist, your Episcopal priest. Can you share with us how, you know, you're able to exist in such different spaces and still be who you are? Can you share with us how each of the roles that you held within your life have influenced or have enriched your role as a reverend? Yeah. So, um, when I, I had to join the military to go to college. And when I joined the military, I was so young. I was 18 years old and I wasn't thinking about war or anything other than affording to go to college. And I knew that if I joined the military, they would house me, feed me, and train me, and I would be able to go to college. So that's what I did. Unfortunately for me, war broke out, 
when I joined the military. And I ended up serving as an Arabic linguist during the first Gulf War and the ensuing conflicts after that. Um, and I also served as a Macedonian linguist during the Bosnian conflicts when I changed languages. Um, so because of that, it took me nine years to get a bachelor's degree. I got my bachelor's degree and got out of the military and started working in the field that my degree served, which was psychology. And I started working with children with developmental disabilities. Um, and that's where I became a behavioral specialist. I did that for a few years. And then I pursued a master's degree in curriculum and instruction, which brought me further out west in my state of Maryland. Um, I did that for a little while. Um, finished my master's degree and got a job with the health department. I always wanted to be a teacher and a helper, a giver, and I wanted to help children who were underprivileged like I was as a child. Um, so I took a position at the local health department and wrote a grant for my position and a program that I developed for high-risk preschool children and their families. It offered social skills curriculum to the children and parenting classes to the parents, but it also supported them socioeconomically through the provision of gift certificates to pay their electricity and grocery gift cards and things like that. I think that informs my ministry because, you know, in the church, you work with people from across the spectrum, from the underprivileged to the very privileged. And so I've been able to develop relationship with people all around the church, inside and outside, and understand the context from which they're working. I've also been very passionate about um, people of color because of my family background and understanding what it's like to be discriminated against my entire life for many different reasons, either for being Asian or being in a family that has Asians and African-Americans. So I feel like it helped me become more well-rounded so that I could then serve God's people more effectively. I don't know if that covered all of my <laughs> past lives of my careers. But I hear the common thread, which is that you really wanted to be present with people, specifically with people who were marginalized, as you said, underprivileged and whatnot. And, and all of that has informed your ministry, which I find quite beautiful because it reminds me of something that Howard Thurman wrote. Majority of the people in the world live with their backs against the wall. And his quest was to find what was the gospel message saying to them. Yeah. And I, I feel like um, I spent a lot of my life feeling like I didn't belong anywhere because I was either being told that I didn't belong in the Asian community or told I didn't belong in the African-American community, which is the community that I was raised in and half my family is. Um, and I never quite fit in the white community. And so I kind of internalized that type of racism where I literally felt like I didn't belong anywhere. Until I realized I do belong everywhere. Uh -huh. We all belong. Mm -hmm. And together we're all 
beautifully and wonderfully made by God. How did you get to that realization? What was that journey? I think it's progressive for me. Um, I'm an internal processor, so I carry a lot of this around with me. I can compartmentalize, but it's always in little pockets within me, and I can refer to them and apply them to different experiences. And as you both well know, racism is alive and well today. And so being from the family that I'm from, I experience it all the time. And I see also in others the desperate need to feel like they belong. And so through my own actions of trying to help people realize they do belong everywhere that they are, just the way that they are, that helped me change my internal mechanisms to accept that I also belong everywhere. I need to, you know, they say when you preach, you're not just preaching to the people, you're also preaching to yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I was basically preaching to myself and teaching myself that I'm just as beloved as the people that I'm trying to impress upon. You know, Angela, um, often people who has been discriminated against and marginalized there are wounds that they carry and baggages they carry. When I see you, I don't see those baggages playing out. There's something of a wholeness that I see in you that you said you've got multiple packets within you. And one of the African-American women Womanist described that many parts in you. She talked about shifting self. Depending on the context, you can shift. And uh, that doesn't mean that you are schizophrenic or you have split personality. You are being pretty resourceful and you belong everywhere. Yeah. Great. Adaptable, yeah. yeah. which is one of the main lessons in Pastoral Lab. So you're living it. Yeah, and that's actually what birthed the Kintsugi eggs because I was coping with the pain of the shutdown, being in a new place. I mean, it would have been hard already given the, the marginalization that I was used to experiencing already. But then to be in this total lockdown across the the country on the other coast in a little apartment and I knew no one and when I first started there I wasn't even on the email distribution and nobody realized for a long time it took a wow. while for all of that to to be aired and to be rectified so I was feeling pretty broken it was a really desperate time for me and I'm artistically inclined so I cope through art a lot of the times art and gardening which is also an art um, and I was cooking some eggs for myself and I cracked the egg and I looked at it and I thought can it be repaired and I've always been enamored by the art of kintsugi so I thought I bet I could kintsugi this egg and make it beautiful mm -hmm. with all of its brokenness you know and so I made my first kintsugi egg 
And I painted in the colors of the rainbow to remind myself and others of God's promise to us and God's unconditional love for us. And so I made a few kintsugi eggs and then I started making them for people in specific contexts. Um, I had another seminarian who was graduating at the end of that lockdown and it was just a really tough time to end your seminary as well. Um, and she loved poetry. So on her egg, I painted it with her favorite colors and wrote a poem by Kagawa Toyohiko Ooh. all around it in a spiral and gifted that to her because it was meaningful for her making it through the pandemic lockdown in seminary. And I don't know if you're familiar with Kagawa Toyohiko, but talk about a survivor. Hmm. And a servant of God. Just amazing. Um, And then for anybody who doesn't know what kintsugi is, kintsugi is the art of repairing broken pottery. So it is not rendering something broken as useless. It's embracing the use and the beauty of that piece of pottery, of that vessel, by enhancing its brokenness with gold leafing or gold fill. They use other metals, silver, gold, platinum, but the most common one that we see in art is using gold. I just looked at that as we're vessels and God is the potter and God's healing is the kintsugi of our souls. Wow. And it was beautiful as I saw the photos. Everyone expressed themselves how they needed to in their own eggs. I mean, when I think of an egg, there's one use, which is to eat what's inside of the egg. And in a sense, if you break it, then the use is done. There's nothing that else that it can give you except when you embrace that kintsugi egg exercise, what it's giving you is the beauty that you can behold. And that's all that's needed. Mm -hmm. Right. And so... You know, we all have our brokenness in our lives, and it does not mean that we are bad or ugly or useless. We're beautiful. We're still beautiful, and we might even be more beautiful. Something that was really impactful for me um, outside of sharing it at our retreat was I shared it. I was a guest preacher at another church in the area, and um, I shared it with that church. And someone in a prison ministry asked if she could take that exercise to the prison. Mm. I cannot think of a better use for that activity. Yes. Talk about people who must feel broken, so broken, and judged for their brokenness. Mm -hmm. Help them feel whole again and beautiful. It's not just the eggs painted that was beautiful, but also... As I, even though it's photos that I saw, the facial expressions of the woman who were painting, that was beautiful. Yeah. And then one component that I usually include in that workshop is little slips of paper for a prayer. So if you're making the egg regarding and thinking about something very specific that has happened, you can write down a prayer and then seal it inside your kintsugi egg. 
And another beautiful part about it is when you crack the egg, you cannot predict how it's going to break. That's right. And so those cracks can go all over the place. They can be small cracks. You can have a big gaping hole in it. (laughs) And it's all lined with gold. So it's all beautiful. Angela, in your current role as a priest, when you minister to people on God's unconditional love, the message of the church would be to people. Like, what is a message that you see now, um, generally speaking, that's given to people? And what do you wish the message would be? It's really hard to accept that God loves us unconditionally. And I understand that. For some people, it's just, it might feel impossible to accept because it's a hard world. Um, And I try to, I have a series of icons that I, I'm an iconographer also, um, that I write and with mirrors in them because I want people to see themselves in the icon. It's a window into heaven and we're windows into heaven. And so one of my icons that I actually wrote for this church that I'm now a priest in, but I once was an intern in, um, it was my departure gift to the church, but I did Christ Pentocrator with flames. And I have it actually, I can show it to you. It just happens to be in my office right now. Um, flames coming out of his hand, the light of Christ, but the face part is so that people can look into it and mm. see Christ in them and them uh-huh. in Christ. And what I try to impress upon people is God made you intentionally to love you. Whether the world expresses that same love to you or not god loves you unconditionally even if you don't accept it right now and then i tell them i love you too and i listen mostly what i do is listen deeply to people that's called ministry unspoken ministry can be the most impactful just Mm -hmm. the listening now you are adding iconography you may like uh, orthodox they are into icons so just a little stories when we went to greek orthodox church in geneva older generations among us didn't quite resonate with all those icons and younger generation teens amongst us they were just totally captivated. I think it's important because none of us is above anyone else. And so I think it's important for people to be able to see themselves as a beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are some of your biggest challenges as you are in ministry for you specifically? The best I can do is accompany people and try to help them feel loved, at least by me, if by no one else. I don't think you try to fix people. I experienced your help at the retreat that I couldn't go. (laughs) But the way you present yourself and offer help was just so soothing and comfortable and calming. I hope so. And I'm grateful that that's how 
how you received it, because that's what I try to do. It's not one of those, let me fix you kind of hell, but it is something about your caring presence and genuine offer of help and thoughtfulness. Whoa, that was something I have not received quite some time because I'm the one who is helping all the time. So, uh, yeah, that, that was so refreshing. Yeah. For me, I think what's key is in my approach is that I know it, how painful things can be, how painful life can be. And I want to, as much as I possibly can, help alleviate others feeling pain because it's hard. And if I can't help alleviate it, I at least want to hold their hand through it so that they don't feel alone or abandoned. Right. I think something else that I definitely feel from you, Angela, is that there is an incredible reservoir of inner strength. And that's Uh where I think the calmness comes from when you're maybe you're faced with the crisis. But, you know, as a helper myself, I think that inner strength is so is key to being able to continue to help other people because unless we fill that it could get empty so quickly but i think i just appreciate the way that you carry who you are in all you do and i think that there's an incredible strength to that which is probably comes from because you embrace kintsugi and you have learned to embrace every part of yourself and that shows yeah, and something else that feeds me is poetry. Uh-huh. I, I incorporate it in many of my sermons, um, always in workshops, because poets have a way of putting in words what is so hard to express in our feelings, you know? And it's comforting for me to read someone else's expressions of something that I feel so deeply and sometimes find hard to find the words. Is there one in particular that resonates with you quite strongly? Um, there's the guest house by Rumi. I love that poem. Oh, I love Rumi. Yes. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready yes. for this? The guest house. This being human is a guest house every morning. A new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of all its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. That's basically telling us to embrace joy, no matter how hard it gets. If you'd like to support Isaac in producing this podcast or our overall mission of supporting AAPI and Latina woman ministers, 
You can donate to Isaac at isaacweb.org.